Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Deutschland über alles. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and this week we turn our attention to Germany and the first and certainly not the last edition of Das Real Football Cast. All the major talking points from the Bundesliga will be discussed within the next hour. And of course, there's even more in the unfolding saga, which is otherwise known as Project Restart. This week, Carl's having so much fun in Dortmund's black and yellow wall that he's now stuck in quarantine. But fear not, as Drew will be reviving the famous Wally Pit role and carrying the load all on his own. So Drew, how have you been since we last spoke? I have been doing fantastic. Thank you, Dan. I loved watching the Bundesliga. And don't get me wrong, I love paying homage to Wally Pip. But you know what? I think today, as a star, I'm going to have to say I'm doing the Erling Holland role. Can't go wrong with that one. He was fantastic this weekend and can't wait to talk to you about it. Yeah, I mean, as it's Das Real Fußballcast this week, it's only fitting that we sort of evolve <laughs> with the times. So I think that's absolutely fine. You've taken on that mantle instead. So before we talk all things Bundesliga, I best do the social media bits first. I always will be talking to the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our ever-growing elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, leave a review so we can move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can also find me on SoundCloud and Audio Boom. Well, the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Also, a big shout to our content partners, lastwordonfootball.com. Check out the excellent work that Drew does and some of the work that I do as well. Once you listen to the podcast, there's loads of content to be read there, so do check them out. Right, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Let's go, of course, to Germany. And the first segment in Das Real Fußballcast. So Carl is no doubt celebrating after Dortmund's impressive win. And you'd have to say, Drew, that even with a, well, not even a handful, quite a few absences for Dortmund, they made Schalke look very, very ordinary. Yeah, Dortmund was fantastic in this match. It was absolutely one-way traffic. And of course, what did you have to restart the league? It was an Erling Holland goal. And it was absolutely fantastic. Here's the thing, was Dortmund this entire year have shown that they score goals 
in in huge numbers, and Schalke have shown that they can't score goals. I believe their leading score has only seven in the Bundesliga this year, and that this game was pretty much a microcosm of that. Julian Brand was absolutely fantastic. He had a hand in each of the four goals, and Dortmund absolutely ran roughshod over Schalke. I think in this match, something you saw was Dortmund, kind of their youthful exuberance, they were not affected very much by the coronavirus stoppage. You could argue that they, when they played PSG uh, in the Champions League, even though they lost, before the stoppage, maybe that helped them. Maybe they were a little bit more attuned to what was happening or how they would kind of have to uh, settle in to this match with an empty stadium. But I really think it more just came down to Dortmund is a far superior team. There's a reason that they are pushing uh, Bayern Munich for the title where Schalke is not. And they're really just battling to stay mid-table. So I think everything that you saw before the stoppage was reflected in this match. And Dortmund was absolutely amazing. And I think you're going to continue to see this. Of course, Holland will continue to score goals in bunches. And Schalke is not going to. So this was one-way traffic. And I think Dortmund fans should be very, very excited, even though they can't go to matches, that they are going to be able to push Bayern Munich all the way until the brink, uh, pushing for the uh, Bundesliga title this season. Yeah, you're absolutely right in the sense that even though there's been a two-month hiatus, it's as if that hiatus never happened. You can literally just condense those you know, stop-and-start periods, put them together, and the same sort of form rolls on. Dortmund, just electric from the start. As you say, Haaland gets an early goal, eases any tension there might have been, but... When Schalke were looking so ordinary, so abysmal, really, you know, you've got David Wagner on the touchline making Schalke look like the Huddersfield from last season, and their goalkeeper <laughs> was doing them no favours whatsoever, were they? No, Schubert was awful in this game. I mean, honestly, he looked like he has been in lockdown since the first day of his career. He was so rusty. I mean, bo- both trying to stop shots and distributing it out of the back. I believe it was the second goal when uh, Holland pressed him, and he panicked and tried to get rid of it. And he kind of half in between tried to send it long, but then also tried to send it to somebody to play at their feet. And it it was just a nightmare. He was terrible. And I mean, look, he had no help from his defense. He had no help from the midfield, which, especially in the first half, got absolutely passed through every single time. So Schubert, while awful on the day, didn't really have um, any help from his teammates. Here's a question I think David Wagner has to answer. Which, again, I mean, if they're mid-table, then I guess it's not that big of a deal. But remember, Schubert is not supposed to be in goal. Their keeper should be Nubel, who is now pretty much benched after deciding to leave Schalke at the end of the year on a free and is going to be or is going to Bayern Munich. And so I think that's part of the reason that Schalke is going to struggle over the, the stretch run of the season. They don't have their top keeper in there. They haven't been that great defensively this year. They haven't been able to score. So once again, all all of the problems that you've seen with Schalke over the past few, well, not the last two months, but uh, if we take that part out, over the last few games that they've played throughout the season, it all came to a head in this match. They looked very lethargic. They looked slow. They were late to every set, or they were uh, second to every 50-50 ball. And um, American Weston McKinney summed it up after the game in an interview he did uh, with somebody stateside talking about they just, they didn't deserve it. They didn't have that fire and that energy, and he didn't blame the crowd or or lack thereof. He said, you know what? This was on us. We didn't come out prepared, and it really showed. And he's 100% right, as Schalke were abysmal in this match. That's not to take anything away from Dortmund. 
but Shaga definitely had no business being in the same park as Dortmund in this match. Yeah, because sometimes in scorelines like that, you can either have a team which is absolutely exhilarating or a team which is abysmal. And I think, to be honest, it leans more towards Schalke being very bad. I think, obviously, you can't take anything away from Dortmund and the way they play, especially in the first half. But Schalke, especially in a derby, was really, really sort of poor. And I was going to ask a question, but I think you've sort of answered it already. In sense of the lack of intensity from Schalke, some could say, oh, because it's behind closed doors, but that's too easy of a get-out, really, isn't it? It is, because Dortmund had plenty of intensity, and so, especially if you, if this is, you know, a, a huge rivalry, which it is, this is a huge derby match, arguably the biggest one in Germany, you can't blame the lack of crowd, because it's not as if Dortmund had a crowd behind them, and again, you could say they already played one match like that against PSG, but I don't think that was the reason. I think it was that Schalke is a worse team, and kind of you alluded to with David Wagner, uh, it jokingly making making Schalke look like Huddersfield last year, but even he he tried at halftime. He made some changes tactically, changed the formation and the way they were set up, and that really didn't work at all. And you could see on his face, even he thought, "Guys, I told you how to change. I told you what to do, and still you're not able to stop them." And again, Weston McKinney defensively was kind of left on an island by himself. Uh, in the middle of the park as a six, especially in that second half. And so Schalke, sure, there was no crowd. There was no energy in them. But you can't blame the lack of crowd because Dortmund didn't have the crowd and they were flying from the get-go. So Schalke just showing that they are an average team this year. There was a bit of confusion in the Dortmund lineup just before kickoff. Giovanni Reyna, all set to play, then dropped out. From a personal standpoint, Drew, any disappointment there? Oh, yeah. Huge disappointment that the American wasn't able to start. Well, here's the thing is Gio Reyna has played fantastic since January when he got his first team debut. And this was supposed to be his first Bundesliga start. So I was hyped for it. And I will say, I think every other U.S. soccer fan here was definitely hyped for it as well. Um, but yeah, he went down uh, with a with a slight injury in warmups. And as of now, I still haven't found what it is, the closest I've heard was from a, a fairly popular podcast here that said he should be out only a couple days. Very, very minor. And coming uh, this weekend, he should be back ready to go. Whether he'll start, of course, is a different issue. Um, but yeah, huge disappointment because he's been on on such an amazing rise. He scored his first goal in the German Cup earlier this year. He's got his first assist. He was instrumental in their uh, win over PSG in the first leg in the Champions League. So Gio Reyna has done a tremendous job at only 17 years old in his first season uh, with the first team. And it, it's tough to see him go down. But again, hopefully it's just a minor injury and he'll be back very soon. And I can't wait to see him because I think he's going to continue to do huge, amazing things with Dortmund over the coming years. Yeah, his time will certainly come. Um, I think you just got to be patient. But I guess frustration for him and any US soccer fans watching across the pond. Also, there was no Jaden Sancho from the start. But when you've got Erling Haaland, not really a problem. 10-9 in nine now in the Bundesliga. But more importantly, I want to get your take on his interview technique. He seems to have gone some attention as of late. Um, is it a case of him showing a refreshing amount of disdain for interviewers? Is this right? Is it wrong? What's your opinion? You know, I do think... Interviews are part of being a footballer, and so you have to do it. You don't have to like it, but you do have to do it. I'm kind of surprised at his interviewing, as you said, technique, which is kind of you know one-word responses, kind of snarky at times, but with a with a serious face. I'm I'm surprised because his father was a footballer. 
His father was a footballer for years, and yes, English is his second language. Erling Holland, that it, well, his father as well, but um, yes, English is his second language. But he lived in England for quite a while, so I think he should be able to speak English just fine. I don't think English was the issue in his interview. I think this is clearly how he wants to conduct himself, and, and I don't mean that as a pejorative. I, I just mean that factually as it is. Um, I would like to see him open up a little bit more. I would like to see a little bit more uh, – maybe this is his personality, I guess, but I would like to see him a little bit more uh, jovial in interviews, especially – He's going to be doing this for probably the next 10 or 15 years. He's going to have to get used to it. So showing a bit of disdain for the media right now or interview – or maybe not the media but doing interviews, I don't know how well that's going to serve him because he's going to have – he's going to get requests nonstop for the rest of his career. I think he might – he might as well just get used to it at this point and try to enjoy it as much as he can. Exactly. I mean, he's going to have to grow into this because let's say, let's pick a year, 2024, he wins a Champions League. He can't be giving one-word answers after lifting the trophy, can he? So I think he's going to have to evolve that part of his media technique. But like you say, you know, it is part and parcel of the game, unfortunately. Whether you are media trained or you like it or you don't like it, you have to play that role. So if you are in the limelight and you're scoring so many goals, it's something he's going to have to learn to live with. Obviously, Drew, you're repping RB Leipzig, and you'd have to say that was the shock of the weekend. Admittedly, I didn't watch a lot of it, so what's your views? I'm going to trust your opinion. What's your views on your boys after they were held to a one-all draw with Augsburg? No, Freiburg, sorry. That's okay. They're all Bergs to me, yeah, Wolfsburg, right. Augsburg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so here's the thing. is Yes, the, the result, I think, was a little bit shocking, and the fact that Freiburg took the lead on a very freak goal that was... If, if it was Lionel Messi, it would be a brilliant back heel. Since it, since it was Manuel Golda, who most people don't know, it was you know a freak accident um, from a corner that whipped in and, and it kind of clipped him and, and went into the back of the net. If you look at the scoreline, 1-1 draw at home, you must think, oh, Leipzig didn't play well. And in parts, maybe you could say that. But this was one-way traffic as well. Leipzig had, uh, depending on which you, which site you read, had over 20 shots, eight of them on target, and so they dominated this match. The problem was they couldn't finish. Every single player in attack for Leipzig, both starters and subs, all missed wide open chances, clear cut chances on net. And from the first minute or from the second minute, they had shots on target and were peppering the Freiburg goal. Now you do have to give credit, I think. To Freiburg's keeper Alexander Schwallow, he was absolutely fantastic. Stood on his head, but again, Leipzig—they were very good. They just couldn't finish. That little bit of sharpness was off, and I think part of it is from from having the layoff. Don't get me wrong, um, but I think also part of it is Leipzig are a very well-drilled team, kind of in in the patterns of play and the way that they move. And and I know that doesn't always affect finishing. Um, but I think that was where you kind of saw the sharpness fall off. Their passing was still crisp. They are a very counterattacking team when they play someone who's above their level. This match they didn't have to. But on their one their one big time counterattack, they were lightning quick. They were in on goal, but they just couldn't find the back of the net. So I'm not worried about Leipzig. It was disappointing that they dropped points, but they are going to get better over the next uh, few matches. The problem is if they want to push for the title, it's not that they won't earn enough points. It's that I don't think you can rely on Bayern Munich to drop enough points for Leipzig to be in there. So unfortunately, 
I do think their title hopes were kind of dashed with this uh, with this draw at home to Freiburg. Yeah, you mentioned the title race. Is seven points going to be too much for them to claw back? Because obviously there's now teams above them. And like you say, it's not necessarily about them going on and winning the next eight. It's where other teams are going to drop points. I know Munich and Dortmund face each other next week, which is going to be a mouth-watering clash. But you then think, is there enough still to claw back? Yeah, it's good. it's definitely going to be difficult. The one good thing that Leipzig has you know, uh, in their back pocket is their remaining fixture list is pretty favorable. They don't have too many high-profile matches except for Dortmund towards the end of the season. Um, they face teams in mid-table for the most part or below, such as Fortuna Dusseldorf, who's in the uh, relegation battle, Paderborn, who's also in a relegation battle. So that, I think, is kind of um, you know, the ace up the sleeve for Leipzig at this point. But again, I just don't think you can count on Bayern Munich to drop enough points. I mean, even uh, Leipzig's manager, Julian Nagelsmann, said after the match, he said, I'm happy with our performance. I think we played well, just not with the result. And unfortunately, that result is going to lead them uh, to a place that I think is not winning the Bundesliga title. They are seven points behind because Bayern Munich won on Sunday. And you'd have to say that it wasn't a swashbuckling performance in Bayern Munich. But at the same time, it didn't really need to be. If this is... I guess, the warm-up for next Tuesday. This is almost akin to a tune-up fight before the heavyweight title clash. Yeah, exactly. Bayern, you know, I mean, that's the thing, right? Water is wet, Bayern wins. That's exactly how the world works. And the same thing happened against Union Berlin. I did think it was kind of interesting that if you look, Bayern... Okay, look, of course, Union Berlin was sitting in. Of course they were against Bayern Munich. But they only had a handful of shots on target... And their goals came from, well, a, a penalty from uh, Lewandowski and then a set piece later on with uh, Benjamin Pavard heading it in. So I think, like you said, not the best of performances for Bayern, but I think a, a perfect match for them to kind of shake off the ring rust and get ready for um, some bigger matches. As you mentioned, they have Eintracht Frankfurt coming up. And then after that midweek, so uh, a week from now, is when they're taking on Dortmund, and that's going to be the huge match that they're definitely going to have to win. Uh, well, both sides are going to have to win uh, when they get to uh, when they get to it. So Bayern, good kind of tune-up match, good to get their feet wet. Not the best of performances, but they're Bayern Munich. They always win, and I think they're going to improve as the matches go on. Yeah, you mentioned Eintracht Frankfurt, actually, and that's going to be an interesting subplot at the weekend because it was Frankfurt who beat Bayern Munich 5-1 in November, which then saw Niko Kovac get the sack. And since then, the season has transformed. So almost, in a sense, Frankfurt did them a massive favour because you'd almost have to ask yourself, would Bayern be wrestling at the top of the table with him still in charge? Probably not. So, like you say, it's all there's a lot of subplots starting to emerge and we, we are in for a really interesting end of the season. But let's save the best for last, which was Monday night. And my boys, Bayer Leverkusen, as the Kai Havertz shirt show, so he came to Werder Bremen. A, br- a brace for headers last night. He looks a real prospect, another real prospect coming out of Germany. The big question is, Drew, will the Premier League come calling soon? I think a lot of teams already are. I mean, I've read links. Chelsea have said that they're interested in him, although I can't imagine he's going there. I believe it was Manchester United that I read is also looking at him. And then, of course, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus. I mean, every big club in Europe is definitely looking at Havertz. Um, but I have also read that many Germans, including Michael Ballack, are telling him, hey, don't leave yet. Stay at Leverkusen for another year or two, maybe. Uh, I believe his contract ends after next season, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they're telling him, stay here for his development. 
I think Kai Havertz is a fantastic player. He's great as a number 10. Uh, in this match, he played as the uh, the sole number 9, even though he kind of floated back at times more of a false 9. Um, but he's fantastic. Last season, him and Julian Brandt together at Leverkusen were amazing. This year, what I think is so interesting about Havertz is with Julian Brandt now gone to Borussia Dortmund, his production, Havertz that is, in goals and assists has gone massively down. However, if you look at his average ratings on who scored and different metrics, he's actually playing just as well, if not slightly better than last season. So I think that's kind of the concern right now is, was la I don't think this is the case, but the concern is, was last year a one-off for him? Did he just have a really good year? And is he essentially not producing at that same level this season, kind of a sophomore slump? So I think that's why people are saying, you know what? Don't leave yet. I mean, he's only 20 years old. He he doesn't need to rush to go to the Premier League or anywhere else at this point. But I do think, uh, to kind of go back to your original question and sum this up, I think a lot of Premier League clubs and a lot of clubs around Europe are going to be after him. I mean, in this game, he showed that he can also head the ball. Like you mentioned, both of his goals were headers. He was very good leading the line, kind of in a, in a false nine or nine and a half role. And so I think he's showing that he can be more than just a number 10 and that he can play a variety of roles depending on which club wants to snatch him up. In terms of Werder Bremen, their opposition, they were absolutely awful last night, especially from set pieces. You know, three goals I think they conceded from set plays. I'd imagine on that evidence and the evidence of what we've seen in the first phase of the season, not the first half, that their lengthy run in the Bundesliga will be coming to an end at the end of this campaign. Yeah, Werder Bremen, they look like they have no shot to stay up. They had one shot on target, which was the goal. And I believe if and when they get relegated, because right now they are in one of the automatic relegation spots, um, I believe it's been 40 years or something that they've been in the Bundesliga. I don't think it was. I, I think they've been relegated before, if I remember correctly. But yeah, right now they look like they're going down. I think the biggest uh, point that you could see that in this match was their their passing was awful. So many times they passed it, you know, they didn't hit their man in stride. They passed it behind him or it was so far out in front that they weren't going to catch up to it. Their finishing was atrocious. Every shot missed the target by at least 10 or 15 yards. And of course, the problem right now is there's no fans in the stands to throw the ball back down to the pitch. So somebody has to go and get it 18 rows up. This was absolutely atrocious from Werder Bremen and uh, I'm going to be a little bit selfish here for a moment. Earlier, you mentioned uh, Gio Reyna, an American. I talked about Weston McKinney. Well, another American plays at Werder Bremen, Josh Sargent. And he came on as a sub, did absolutely nothing, contributed zero to the attack. And, and and that's not a shot at him. I mean, nobody at Werder Bremen really did in this match. And so I think right now they are a very safe bet to go at home. I believe they only have one win in 12 home matches this season. They're not picking up points at at any stage, really. And I don't see them getting out of this relegation fight. And they're probably going to be in the second Bundesliga next year. Yep, I'd have to agree with those points. So, we've done a whistle-stop tour of the main Bundesliga talking points. How was the spectacle for you? You know, did you enjoy your viewing? How much did you actually get done? It sounds like you've done the whole lot, to be honest, Drew. But, you know, fundamentally, did you have a good weekend of Bundesliga action? Oh, yeah, I loved it. It, it was, I will admit, in the beginning... I have watched games behind closed doors before, don't get me wrong, um, but never have I been as excited to watch a game behind closed doors uh, as I was for this weekend. 
Um, it was a bit strange at first. It did take some getting used to. Um, I do wish, I wish I spoke German so I could understand what players and coaches were yelling at each other, or even French, because right, not everybody's a German speaker there. Um, I, I do wish I could kind of understand the commands they were yelling out or uh, the instructions from managers and things like this. Um, so it was strange at first, but I did enjoy it. I actually think, and I want to see what you think about this, Dan. I actually think the players were more affected than the, the people watching at home like you and me. And the reason I say that is because there's lots of times you see them where, you know, when they scored a goal and they kind of look around and, and don't know how to celebrate. Um, there's times where uh, I would imagine they tried not to yell things out knowing that they're going to get picked up or maybe not that they're not going to or that they're going to get picked up on the mic. And if they're if they're swearing or something like that. And so I actually think the players felt the changes a lot more than us at home because when you're watching at home, you're watching at home. And yes, you can hear the crowd and yes, you can see them um, and things like that. Um, where I think I was kind of affected the most was it seemed as if goals didn't have quite that much of an impact because you don't hear the roar of the crowd, or even if it's a miss. Um, another thing that kind of threw me off was I thought pen or uh, not just penalties, but any type of foul looked a lot harsher than it normally would have because you can hear the crunching of the tackle. You can hear the players, you know, in agony and scream. So it seems worse than I think when the crowd uh, drowns it out. So those were some of the things that I noticed. Uh, and again, I, I think the players were actually affected more than than people at home. I mean, what about you, Dan? How, how did you take to to watching games in mass without fans? Um, yeah, like you say, I think the first few minutes it was a bit sort of trial and error, but you got used to it. And I, I think what helped was you're watching good matches. I think, you know, watching Borussia Dortmund play is always a bit of a treat anyway. So that wasn't bad from an actual one-pitch point of view. In, in a sense, the sort of goals, you're right in the sense that um, there's almost missing, well, it is missing that, that half-second of anticipation before, you know, when the crowd just literally sort of lift up or you can just see a shot being taken without that kind of raw or that visual cue then you just don't quite anticipate it coming so that that's something to get your head around fouls was a very good point i didn't even think of just that sort of extra crunch or that extra yelp from a defender or forward or whatever then it sort of magnifies the actual infringement but you know on the whole i think it was sort of good obviously i think we're all clamoring for football to come back and some have rightly said um i've watched it five minutes i've had enough um, i've done with it it's got no fans football with no fans and all that but at the same time those people are going to have to get used to this. Unless they switch off football for 12 months, 18 months, then, <laughs> yeah, you know, like you can't really sort of go, oh, you know, I'm, you know, I think the, the phrase new normal has popped up quite a lot, but this is where we are, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, just to have football back. So I think it gets a pass. For me, I'm not sure I'll watch as many matches next week or this weekend, but, you know, it's entertaining. So I think I watched four out of the five, or four and a half, should I say, but I can quite easily see myself watching another three or four this weekend. What about yourself? Oh, yeah. I'm going to definitely try and watch as many as I can. Um, you know, this weekend, uh, I believe there aren't too many high-profile matches. Um, but uh, there's the the, uh, the Berlin Derby that's happening. And then some kind of teams that are um, going for Champions League spots or something like that. Uh, Gladback and Leverkusen, they're all fighting for – or they're both fighting for the top four. And then you mentioned earlier – Bayern and, and Frankfurt, that's kind of more uh, between the two of them, I guess, uh, based upon the uh, earlier fixture this year. I actually thought about some one more thing that uh, 
when you were talking was, you know what every goal felt like to me? Every goal, even if it was the opening goal, it felt like one in garbage time when the game's already been decided. Because that's when, you know, fans don't really cheer and, and erupt because, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter at that point uh, if, if one team's already winning by three or four. And so that was kind of what it felt like to me at times was, it was like, yep, garbage time goal. They're just padding their lead. When in fact, it's actually just become one nil, you know, 10 minutes into the match or something. That was uh, something that, that I also thought was kind of strange. Um, but yeah, again, going back to it, I'm going to try and watch as, as many matches as I can, uh, especially RB Leipzig. Those are my boys. I'm sticking with them. I know everybody hates them for, for lots of reasons, but I'm sticking with them and I'll be watching them as much as I can. Oh, we've got to have one villain in the piece. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> Always. Uh, you highlight Mönchengladbach Leverkusen. That's where my focus will be, not just because I'm back in Leverkusen, but third v fifth with a race for the Champions League place on offer. I think that's going to be a great clash on Saturday. So to be honest, I think I can see myself doing three or four quite easily. Berlin derby on Friday, Bayern Munich Frankfurt, this one, maybe Sunday off. But yeah, for Bundesliga, you've passed. Well done. Week one. So let's take a hard left now and go to Project, well, who knows in the Premier League. Drew, we all want football's top tier back. There's no doubt about that. But are you starting to get project restart fatigue? Uh, I would say no. Maybe a little bit before, but not anymore. Because with with the Bundesliga coming back, I think this... What I liked about the Bundesliga's return going successfully is that this is now kind of a blueprint for the Premier League. And, you know, Serie A and the rest of them, don't get me wrong. Um, and something I felt a little bit watching the Bundesliga is I don't know the players and the teams as well as I do the Premier League. And while I am rooting for RB Leipzig, don't get me wrong, I don't have that same fandom or fervor as I would, you know, for Chelsea or watching the Premier League. And so I, I loved watching the Bundesliga, and I'm going to continue to do it, especially without anything else to watch. Um, but I think this kind of lit the fire in me to get the Premier League back as well. And so I think I'm even more excited for that. I will say I am getting a bit tired of kind of the runaround of when are we going to do this? When is the Premier League going to do that? Well, what about this? What about that? It seems as continually there's not many answers coming out of their weekly meetings. Uh, of course, the big one, which I'm sure we're going to get to very soon, is that teams were okay to start training uh, today, actually, Tuesday, um, and throughout the rest of the week. And so that, I think, is a huge positive sign. And so that, to me, is kind of like, all right, finally, there's some progress and we're getting back towards the uh, the Premier League return. I know they said they may have to push the restart back a week to, I believe it was uh, June 19th instead of the 12th. But to me, it's kind of like, whatever. It's coming back. They have a date in mind. Training is, is, is restarting. So good news, and, and I'm happy for it. So I may have felt a little bit of fatigue before, but now the, the fire is back for me. Yeah, I mean, there's not really too many additional questions that I can ask you because I think we've really covered everything in these past four to five weeks like there's so many ifs and buts that I think we've covered in terms of real depth that I don't think I need to go much much further but there are still a couple of talking points that are emerged one you pretty much just answered anyway I was going to sort of talk about larger scale training opening today as we speak and even in my notes I've said positive steps so you've answered that question which is great so I'll expand on that part Troy Deeney has been quite vocal and chimed in and said that he's not planning to risk his family's life to go to training. That's an understandable viewpoint, of course. No one can argue that. But it does go on the question, if he doesn't train, and in theory doesn't play when it restarts, should he then be getting paid? So I have no problem with Troy Deeney or, or and other players. Right? We've talked about Glenn Murray, Sergio Aguero. 
not wanting to play. I, I completely understand. And Troy Deeney specifically, he mentioned, you know, he has a young child who who's had some uh, health conditions. And so I completely understand why he would be fearful of returning and possibly, you know, getting the coronavirus and bringing it home. Completely understandable. And and it makes sense why he would not want to return. But because of that, I would say he should not be getting paid. In the same way, any job, if you don't work, why would you get paid? And plus, don't forget, you know, Watford in particular is not a huge club. They don't have millions upon millions upon millions in reserves, I imagine, where they can just, you know what, we'll just keep paying guys, you know, in perpetuity until they decide to come back. So, no, I don't think he should be getting paid. And I'm not saying that Watford needs to be, you know, the first mover and set the precedent. But again, like any job, if you're not going to work for whatever reason, and, and again, this one is a serious one, which I understand, but you're not working, so you shouldn't get paid. And I think I think there's a lot of players who do want to come back. Uh, you know, T- Tammy Abraham, for example, uh, he did an interview with, I believe it was the Daily Mail. I, I can't remember, but he did an interview last week, and uh, he talked about that. He still lives at home. You know, he's a young guy, still lives at home with his family, and his father has asthma, but Tammy Abraham said, you know, his father says, look, go play. I get it. Like, this has been your dream. You've been working for this your entire life. You know, you've had a great season at Chelsea. Go play. And Tammy Abraham said, you know what? It's a tough decision. He's not sure if he's going to come back yet from, from that interview, but he said if he does, he'll likely, you know, stay in a hotel for a month or two, whatever it happens to be. So I think there are ways to get around or, you know, uh, to get around this, so to speak, um, and come back to play. Now, Troy Deeney, obviously, with uh, with children at home, I, I don't know if he wants to leave his uh, his wife or girlfriend by by, by herself with, with young kids. That's obviously a completely different situation than Tammy Abraham. Um, but in terms of coming back, I think if you're a player, it's up to you to decide. And, and just like everybody else, you know, are you willing to take the risk to return to play? And if you're not, that's okay. Understandable. Then you're not going to get paid. At least in my view, I don't think you should. Um, if you are willing to take the risk and come back and play, great. We're happy to have you, and I'd love to see you out on the pitch, uh, especially Tammy Abraham, of course, being a Chelsea fan myself. Um, but I think that's what it should be, is if players don't want to play, no problem. The club should respect that. But in return, they don't have to pay them. Talking of getting paid, Newcastle were meant to be in the money. We nearly did a whole show about that a few weeks back. But it's all gone quiet on the Magpies front. So if you're a Newcastle fan... Is there a little bit of concern that they've been through all this before? You know, the promised takeover, the talks, nothing happens. Is this going to repeat again or is there just a backlog because of Project Restart and eventually this will get signed off? You know, that's that's such an interesting question because uh, my, my co-host on my other podcast, he asked me that off air and my immediate response is, of course, this is going through. And my, my reason is because... There was so much media attention and it seemed as if they were, you know, days away, maybe just a couple dotting of the I's and crossing of the T's until signing the contract. But you're right in that, you know, the past, what, 10 days, maybe two weeks, a lot of it has gone silent. And so I think this should be a big concern to Newcastle fans. They've been, you know, they've had the the rug pulled out from under them on several occasions, right? Not just one time. Um, and so I think for them right now, they might want to be a little bit cautious, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me for not noticing. And so I think Newcastle 
right now it, it's kind of looking like that. What happened to all the news? What happened to all these different stories about what's going through? I understand the there's the 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 pandemic going on right now and the shutdown and everything, but all the news was coming out during that as well. Exactly. All of the hype, and so the, it is kind of strange that it has gone quiet. I think. If you're Newcastle, if you're the prospective own- – well, maybe not if you're the prospective ownership group if you're pulling out. But I, I think they kind of have have a, a duty, I guess, an obligation to kind of come out and say at least – make a tweet and be like, look, you know, we ran into you know problem X and we're delayed or we had some questions about Y. You know, I think they need to address it right now because it's just been radio silence right now and – uh uh, I might be showing my age, but I'm, I'm going to sound like some of the uh, young guns in the game right now. It sounds like they have uh, Newcastle has been ghosted recently <laughs> by all of this. So I, th- I think honestly, you got to be a little bit worried right now if you're a Newcastle fan at what's happened. Oh, yeah. I think the longer it goes on, the more those concerns will grow. And then you'll hop back to think, hang on, we have been here before. And when you're sort of getting linked with people like Pochettino and Gareth Bale, you know, you're sort of doing your big summer shopping list and all of a sudden you nothing happens, real egg on your face. So that's not to say the deal's collapsed, but it's that uncertainty and that radio silence, which is not doing anyone any favours, really. And yes, there are very extenuating circumstances, but as you correctly referenced, those same circumstances were in play when it all started. So no one's really any better off. Can you see Mike Ashley selling up and going to another Premier League club? Or do you think his sort of dalliance with football as a whole is done after this, if it does actually happen? I don't think he's going to buy a club immediately only because – especially if he's, if he's going to sell up. Well, we, we know he's, he doesn't like spending money at all. Sure, yeah. uh, he doesn't even like spending you – know, he doesn't even like spending advertising money. I'm going to guess all the advertising Sports Direct does at like St. James's Park and everything else related with Newcastle. I'm going to guess that happens for free in, in one way or another. So if he's only going to you know put in his pocket or at least in revenue 300 million pounds – I mean, how, how many clubs can he buy with that in the Premier League? And buying up, there's no way. So I, I just don't see it happening. And, you know, obviously, you know, as maybe unfortunate it might be in some people's eyes, fans can, you know, whine and complain and, and yell and scream as much as they want about they wouldn't want Mike Ashley to come in. But if if he's going to buy a club and the Premier League are okay with it, then the fans really have have no say in it. So there, there might be a lot of pushback. From them, uh, but regardless of that, I just don't see it kind of adding up for him, and I don't think it would be in his best interest to to buy another club. I mean, he's already persona non grata in a lot of places, uh, not just you know in in the Northeast when it comes to Newcastle. So I think it might be a little bit better to kind of lay low and not worry about it, especially now if his stores aren't making money, he's not making that much in the sale. I, I just don't think the numbers add up for him. Uh, to go and buy another club, especially not uh, one that might be more expensive than Newcastle. Yeah, I think it would be pretty ludicrous for him to jump out of the frying pan and go straight into the fire. Although one club I did see a story, and this is one of these Twitter accounts which just bangs out clickbait, so real pinch of salt here. But West Ham. Now, West Ham fans don't really get on with their owners, the Sullivans, the Golds and that. Could you see them then selling up to Ashley and having another sort of fallout with another owner? You know, Ashley's a Londoner. Newcastle fans never taken to him. Could there be a softer approach in East London? I mean, I guess. I mean, if I'm Mike Ashley, the only reason I'd buy Newcastle is if I want to get assassinated. Like, there's no, there's no reason. 
The West Ham fans are going to hate him. <laughs> like you mentioned, they already don't like the owners they have. You know, they feel and, – and I feel or, or I understand and kind of agree they feel somewhat aggrieved with, you know, moving into the London Stadium. And I know they've kind of taken to it now a lot more than, than in the beginning. Um, but no, there, there's no reason for Mike Ashley to buy West Ham. Um, I mean they're just another relegation battling team. And if he comes in, he's probably going to bring them down kind of in the way that, that he's done with Newcastle over the past, you know, five, eight years, whatever it's been. So I don't think that's a step up for him. I think it's kind of a waste of time and probably not even a good use of his money. Because, again, you know, we know that that he's pretty careful when it comes to his wallet and going to to West Ham, trying to keep them up. He's going to have to spend some money, which he's not keen on doing. So I just that doesn't add up to me at all. I don't see it happening. No, if if I was a betting man, which sometimes I am, I don't think Mike Ashley will ever get back involved with football. I think his fingers been been burnt too much. Also, the way the general business industry is at the moment, his industry of um, shops and all that are losing money left, right, and centre. I just can't see where he then finds the finance to do it all over again. I think it's an experiment which he lived the dream or wanted to chase a dream of making Newcastle great. It hasn't worked. And now at the moment, he can't even get rid of it. So he's sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right, so let's have a Yeah, break. quickly became a nightmare. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think he's one of these sort of people that maybe had decent intentions at the start, thinking, you know, I can transform Newcastle because we've referenced Sleeping Giant and all that. Probably sort of looked at it and thought, yeah, it's there for the taking. But when you start penny-pinching and being a skinflint, then you're just going to really draw the eye of Newcastle fans. And it's got quite toxic there anyway. So I think for him to then replicate that in East London, I just can't see him taking on that headache, really. But, you know, where's logic in football? <laughs> I don't think he will, but at the end of the day, he might just do it anyway to, uh, to make us both look silly. But anyway, right, to finish, we're going to have a very quick world tour and other talking points from other countries. So, Drew, first up, you're going to go to Italy for me. There's no football until mid-June. That's been announced a sort of day or so ago. It sounds bad, but when you consider the Premier League won't be starting any earlier, if at all, there's no crisis mode just yet, but they can't really afford any further delays either, can they? Yeah, well, I think a lot of leagues are kind of getting to that point of no return. Now, I, I know they can push back next season and, and, and whatnot, but Italy, uh, you know, they, they were one of the countries kind of hit hardest by the coronavirus, and yet they're coming back at the same time, or, or plan to at least right now, as the Premier League and as La Liga. So I think that's a pretty good sign in Italy, not just in terms of football, but kind of a wider society that hopefully everything is kind of taken care of and getting back to normal, which I think is great. Um, but yeah, a lot of these leagues in Italy, they can't afford to really push back this, the restart of the season that much longer. And especially, you know, one one big concern I've read about is, is weather. Are they going to be able to play in, you know, uh, I guess it would be what forty degrees Celsius, I, I believe, is the right number. Yeah. Um, that's kind of like that threshold. Sorry, I, I do Fahrenheit. Never learned Celsius. <laughs> um, that's about hundred. Yeah, I about think hundred ten, give or take. Oh, okay. Whoa, that's really hot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know that's a big concern. Uh, coming back, not just in Italy but in Spain. Um, so yeah, they, I think they're gonna have to get the ball rolling pretty soon and have to come back. Um, but of course, training, you know, you can't rush training back because then players are going to get injured. I think in the Bundesliga, there was eight muscle injuries. That's pretty much won a game uh, from this weekend. So Italy and, and again, the, these other countries, they have to ramp up quickly, but they also have to be cautious not to endanger player safety when it comes to injuries. So it's kind of a, a fine balance that they're going to have to strike over the next couple of weeks. But 
I hope it comes back, much like the other leagues. I want to see Serie A back. Not that I'm the biggest uh, Serie A fan, but I want to see it come back, and I want to see you know uh, football back on the pitch. Not just for myself, but I think a lot of people uh, in Italy would enjoy that as well, especially after such a uh, being as hard hit as they were by the pandemic. Yeah, I think you know if you're looking at four weeks from now, it could be the real sweet spot where we get a big influx of football again. You know, there's no European Championships, but you might have Bundesliga, La Liga, Premier League, Serie A all playing and probably due to the nature of tight schedules every three to five days. So although we've sort of been starved, we might have a feast in a month's time. So it's getting there, although nothing's going to happen in Scotland because the Premiership have finally decided to wrap things up. Celtic have their nine in a row with a bit of an asterisk, but really if you looked at the table and the way that Rangers were playing, Celtic were always going to win it. However, the story is really with Hearts and their relegation, one that now could be set for the courtroom. So, Drew, whether you care or not, if you don't, I'll take it. But is there room for litigation in this? Do Hearts have to roll over and accept it? So, I'll give a little bit, but then I'll leave it to you because okay. I know you're you're well more you're uh, more versed in this than I am. I'll say this: this is not a shock that Hearts are going to sue, right? I, I believe in France, the teams that got relegated from League One also are trying to sue, and I think that was expected. I think every league knew litigation was almost an expectation, not just a probability, if they were going to cut the season short. Um, My personal view is, sorry, life sucks. Get over it. I understand they want to sue and they want to get their money for being in the top flight and everything. I get it. Um, But I do like the consistency. If you award a champion, you should also then relegate teams. Um, And so I like the consistency. I know it's not going to go down well with uh, a lot of people, especially those uh, at the bottom. But This is how you, in a sense, treat every club equally. Everyone gets the same uh, effects, so to speak. Wherever they were, that's where we end it. Life isn't fair. You know, cry all you want, but life goes on. Um, But Dan, what do you think? Again, you you know way more about this than I do. Um, What do you think about it? Okay, yeah. So from your sort of basic point, or not basic, or your point, I agree. If I expand on that, the issues that Hearts will have, or what they've had so far is that when this sort of bungled vote went through, which is another story that's sort of set, <laughs> set sail, we haven't really got time, but that when that went through, there was always this carrot of reconstruction being dangled, sort of pretty much like, if you vote for this, we might talk about making leagues bigger and so on and so forth. The only problem there was that the Hearts owner, Anne Budge, was then put on the task force or the 15-person panel as the co-chair. Now, that really smacks of self-preservation because really all that sort of says is, look, I'm heading this up. I want any reconstruction to suit my club. It's not because I feel that Scottish football is changing for the better. Fundamentally, it's my team's in the most danger. That hasn't really got off the mark at all. It collapsed once. Now she's going to come back and say, look, what about if we fix it for just a season or two temporarily? That's probably even worse because then clubs will be voting for something which, in theory, Hearts might get themselves out of a mess and then the clubs that have voted for it might be the ones who are punished. So really, you've got a problem where do you punish the team that is... The least good being Hearts, or do you punish the team which is the better team, Dundee United being champions from the other league? And really, you have to punish a worse team, don't you? It's a really tough one, but these are such strange circumstances that there is no right or wrong. It's all about least worst. And I think if Hearts really do press litigation, I do feel the SPFL will eventually find some money and say, look, here's a solidarity payment. Take this. It's not great, but we just need to get on for the sake of Scottish football. There's so much machinations about ballroom tension and conversations and all that that it will roll and roll. There'll be more to come. But 
There's also the... It, exactly, I mean, I could go on for about another 10 minutes, but there's also the problem with reconstruction is that in Scotland you have the teams play each other four times, pretty much, either side of the split. And that's because Sky's TV deal stipulates that you have to have four old firm derbies. Therefore, if you make a league too big, let's say 16 teams, you can only play 30 matches at most. You couldn't play four times then. Obviously, you'd have like a 60-game season. So Rangers and Celtic pretty much wag everyone else's tail. There's just too much sort of of a labyrinth of mess involved, really. So Hearts, I think, really, in summary, are just going to have to suck it up. There, there you go. That's about it. And I could honestly, you could go on for about an hour because it just intertwines with so many different layers to this story. But I think it is the case of Hearts. Unfortunately, you were at bottom. And also, there's no real sense of a great escape had been curtailed. They were just the worst team. They were four points off. They lost to St Mirren in the game before the, the pause so you're sort of thinking, well, where are these points going to come from? So I think that's where we are. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Dan, and see what you said. Um, I, I believe you said uh, Dundee won the second division in Scotland. I don't know how feasible this would be, but I've thought about it for other leagues as well. So the ones that are concerned about, you know, do we promote second division? Do we relegate from the first division and all of that? Well, what about this? When next season comes around, instead of the, you know, uh, Super Cup, essentially, within the country, right? The the uh, Community Shield in, in England. What if they did a one-off between the relegated team, in this case in Scotland, it would be Hearts, and uh, the pro- promoted team from the second division? Uh, again, I believe you said it was Dundee. What if they played a one-off for the final spot in the Scottish Premier League? What about that? Like, Would that be something you'd be interested in? Is that something that could even possibly work? And then whichever team wins, of course, gets that spot, and we begin the season. It's an interesting concept, and I wouldn't be alien to it myself, but unfortunately now the fact that they've already folded the championship weeks before and Dundee United are sort of in waiting to be promoted, then you can't really say, actually, now you've got to do a playoff. So really, I think the, th- the fact that the parameters have been set with the three lower leagues, then means that the premiership has to follow suit. It can't seem to be sort of changing tact. So I think, like I said, Hearts, it's a really unfortunate situation but they have been the worst team. And I think sometimes you've just got to sort of take your medicine. But also, like I said, I think money will be found from somewhere and it will go away slightly quieter than first thought. So all this sort of talk of legal action, I think there'll be just a, look, here's a million or two. I know it's bad, but win the championship, come straight back up and we'll forget all about it. And I think that's probably the way it'll pan out. All right. Well, I... That makes sense. Like I said, you know way more about the Scottish League than I do. Um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting because I think a lot of leagues are going to be going through this. Right, uh, The Netherlands as well, when they canceled their season, maybe in Belgium as well. So I don't think uh, Scotland is the only country uh, or the only league that has to deal with something like this. Litigation. And I mean, don't forget, this is probably going to go on for several years. right? I mean, even take uh, the Bosman case. I believe that was at least a year or two after when he was trying to leave that the, that the ruling and, and whatnot came through. So this is going to be a long, drawn-out process. And so that's why I think even even for Hearts or another club, if – like I understand why you're going to sue, but by the time you finally get a ruling, you may be a couple of years down the line where it doesn't even matter anyways. Well, this is it. You know, The landscape could change completely. In, in Scotland, some teams could – fall by the wayside there might even only be two or three leagues anyway so who knows where we'll be in 18 months but Drew where are we in terms of stateside corner what's going on in the MLS so with MLS right now there's kind of two big things to talk about Um, the first is they are trying to bring back the league and the way they're going to do it the plan right now is to put them all in Orlando all 26 teams 
which is at uh, in Orlando. There's a big uh, it's called the Wide World of Sports Complex, which is owned by uh, ESPN and Disney. They have a, a huge contract to a, they're a broadcast partner with the league, and so they want to take all 26 teams down there, do some sort of not really the not play out the season, but kind of a, a tournament, put them into groups. Not too many details are out on it yet, um, and have them play out. And so teams might be looking at. Uh, two months away, about a month worth of training, and then a month worth of games. And you might get in uh, 10 games, plus or minus. They'll have some sort of uh, group phase, essentially, and then a, a knockout or playoff structure to it. So I like this idea, kind of like with all the other leagues. I want to see them come back. I want to see as much, uh, because we're talking about the U.S., as much soccer as possible. And um, this was a huge year for MLS. They were uh, doing a lot of partnerships with Liga MX and different things. So I'm really disappointed that they're kind of missing this opportunity. The one big caveat that's different for MLS, but similar to a lot of smaller leagues in Europe, is that they don't make a lot of money from TV. I believe their TV contract is less than $100 million. And so without fans, without you know selling tickets, concessions, advertising, all these different things... MLS is probably going to lose a lot of money hosting these games. The one reason that they would do it is with every other sports league in America shut down, you know, and, and soccer not really being that popular, this would be their opportunity to kind of uh, expose themselves to the wider market, try and hook some non-soccer fans and bring them in. So that's where they would try and gain uh, more for the long term and in the short term take a loss. I just don't know if MLS is willing to take that big of a hit. They do have a um that that's the one big talking point right now. Again, I would like to see it happen. The other big one right now is the uh the contract disputes between uh the MLS Players Association, which is their union, and MLS as the league. They're on completely different sides right now. They keep uh counter-offering each other. They're butting a lot of heads and they had agreed to a collect uh, a new collective bargaining agreement. However, MLS is saying right now, well, you know what? We want to get back playing, and if you're not going to play, we may not enact that uh, CBA. We never signed off on it. We agreed in principle. We may have to go back to the negotiating table. So they're holding that over their head right now. And honestly, I don't think MLS players or the union have that much uh, negotiating power. A lot of players in MLS don't make a million dollars, as crazy as that may sound. So – they don't have a lot of money saved up. I don't know how long they can go without earning uh, you know, a steady paycheck. Right now, they are still getting paid by MLS because they haven't negotiated what they would do yet. But owners can hold out much longer than these players can in terms of you know, surviving and having money saved up. So I think MLS, is, the players, are going to have to cave sooner rather than later, and they're going to have to start playing. Again, I think this is a good thing in that I want to see the league come back. Um, but from a negotiating standpoint, I think right now the league holds almost all the cards and has all the power over the players. So that's going to be interesting to play out and see how long can the players really stick to their guns uh, against the owners. So that's something interesting that I think if you're an MLS fan or uh, even casually, that's something to be paying attention to right now. If you're looking into your crystal ball, when can you see a restart actually happening in, in the MLS I think it's going to happen before uh, the fall. Generally, MLS runs from uh, you know end of February or beginning of March until November or December, depending on the season. 
I have a feeling they're going to come back around August or September. Um, a lot of other sports leagues in the U.S. are trying to come back through the summer or the fall. That's, that's when NFL and, and college football begins. So I think MLS will be back this year. It's going to be towards the end of the summer, early fall. That's, I think, probably the most likely uh, point in time. Fantastic. Right, I think that brings us to the end of the show for this week. We've actually crammed in quite a lot. A worldwide tour, quarantine busting. Carl's still locked in quarantine. He should be back with us next week. We'll have to talk to the government to get him released. But I need to do the admin, and that's as simple as thanking Drew. So, Drew, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Yeah, well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Um, we tried to uh, Skype Carl into this, but or Zoom him in. I'm sorry, Zoom. That's the proper one right now. Um, but... He said he had a limit of uh, 75 minutes on the pitch or the, uh, the the podcast that would be. And so he wasn't sure if we'd be able to finish in time. You know, lots of quarantine rules we got to follow right now. So, Carl, we'll talk to you soon. Hope to see you next time. Top work, Drew. Right. With that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.